Hey guys, due to the stress and just the busyness of like this past week and due to like mental health issues and physical issues and so forth and just bad timing, I will once again be reading you a short story. Still staying in the horror realm because hey, even if this is coming up November 1st, it's still it's All Saints Day, it's still kind of a spooky day, you know. But this time, instead of H.P. Lovecraft, I will be reading from one of my favorite authors, John Lindquist. He uh, is a Swedish author. He wrote Let the Right One In, which is which was turned into two films, a Swedish one still by the same name and the American one just called Let Me In. Uh, this book Oh, it's a book of short stories called Let the Old Dreams Die. Uh, the sequel to Let the Right One In is actually in here. But I will be reading you a short story that is one of my favorites called Equinox. So let's begin. It wasn't anybody's fault. One pebble triggers a landslide, one snowflake starts an avalanche. Nobody's fault. Something is set in motion and it has to fulfill the mo that movement. That's all it is. I'm happy with my punishment. Almost two years ago, in the autumn of 2004, Maud Pedersen rang and asked if I could keep an eye on their house while she and her husband were in the Canaries, water the plants, feed the cat. I was a bit surprised because we hadn't really had any kind of close contact, but I saw no reason to say no. Their house is only 300 meters from ours, just on the edge of the area where all the summer cottages are located. Playa de Natin, as we like to call it. I suppose it was partially because Emil had started nursery two months earlier, at the same time as Johanna started year three. Lasse was still working for the prison and probation service in North Tala, and the house was empty during the day. I could usually get my work done in two or three hours. I'm a crossword compiler. Hemet's Journal, Allers, and Kromposten. I can work much more quickly since Goran, one of Lasse's friends, wrote a program enabling me to do the whole thing on the computer. If I really made an effort, I could probably come up with something along the lines of the Sunday crossword in Daigans Nichitter, but that would take longer, and weekly magazines neither demand nor want that kind of thing. I'm paid 1,200 kroner for a crossword that takes about five hours to compile. I work three hours a day and earn marginally less than Lasse, who works seven. Not a bad life, quite the reverse, almost perfect in fact. By 12 o'clock, I've finished work, happy if I've managed to make everything work with words that are in the Swedish Academy's dictionary, less happy if I've had to resort to Bjorn Larsen to fit in with BL. My employers don't seem to mind. It's rare that I get any kind of response. So from 12 o'clock, the day is my own until half past three when Johanna and Emil come home. I usually start by praying to God for a while. It goes in cycles. Sometimes it's every day. Sometimes I might miss a whole week. Then I have a guilty conscience. I pray on the kitchen floor, kneeling on a cushion. I pray for the usual thing, the ability to feel love. Or perhaps that isn't the usual thing. Nowadays, I know there's something wrong with me. Perhaps there was something wrong with my prayers, too. Anyway, Maud's house. 
She and her husband set off for the canaries in the morning, and in the afternoon, I went over to feed the cat. The key was where she said it would be. There was a cat flap and the cat was out, its food untouched. I put some fresh water in its bowl. When I straightened up after putting the bowl down, I felt dizzy and had to sit on the kitchen chair. I sat there for a while, looking around the kitchen, then I stood up. There was nothing special in the top drawer, cutlery. The other drawers also contained various kitchen utensils, except the bottom one. In there, I found a number of bundles of sheets made of material that most closely resembled paper mache, except that it was stiff, shiny. I held a sheet up to the light and saw a spider's web pattern of fibers. I couldn't for the life of me work out what it was or what it might be used for. Perhaps I wouldn't have reacted if there had been just one sheet. Something for baking a particular kind of biscuit? But there were bundles. There must have been hundreds of sheets made of the unfamiliar material. As I crouched there by the drawer, I heard a sound and felt a little shock that ran all the way up from the base of my spine. But it was only the cat. It came in through the cat flap, stood there looking at me. I supposed it was wondering who I was, what I was doing there. Stupidly, I blushed. I left the kitchen and investigated the utility room. There were eight pairs of Best Point men's underpants, the kind you get at the Flegen Legriffen shopping center. No other brands. Last I had lots of different brands of underpants, but this man had found the one he liked and he was sticking to it. I don't remember his name. I want to say Goran, but that's not the name, is it? During the rest of the week, I examined every single corner of the house. I went through the bills they'd paid, found a whole lot of payments to something called Royal Court. Several thousand kroner over the years. I looked on the internet, but I can't find a company with that name. All I get are links to royal families in various countries. I found a gold ring underneath a bundle of cables behind the TV. I couldn't leave it out on the table, so I tucked it under the rug where there was more chance of them finding it. They must have been surprised even so. It's the sort of thing you tell your friends. Just imagine. The ring had been missing for four years, then one day I was just going to shake out the rugs. They had an impressive collection of razors in the bathroom. Five different kinds, if I remember rightly. Okay, I think you get it. I was being nosy. It gave me great satisfaction while I was doing it. When I got home, I didn't feel quite so good. I promised myself I wouldn't do it again. On the first day, I also promised God that I wouldn't do it again. Then I did it anyway and stopped making promises. I also stopped praying that week. It might sound as if this is something I've always done and to a certain extent, I suppose it is. I take the opportunity to read people's letters and diaries on the sly, check what's in their bathroom cabinets. It's bad, I know it's bad. It involves breaking a spoken or unspoken trust. It's a violation. I know. I curse myself for doing it. I've asked God for help, but he doesn't help me. Perhaps I'm not really interested in people's secrets. Perhaps, it, perhaps it's the actual violation I'm after. That's probably worse. After that week, it was a couple of months before anything happened on that front. Johanna was bullied by some older girls at school. I prayed to God that it would stop. It stopped. Perhaps I would have started on, what shall we call it? Phase two earlier if Lasse hadn't been working nights for a couple of months. That meant he was at home during the day and could keep an eye on me. 
It's only in the light of what happened later that such terminology is justified. Keep an eye on me. Things were good between us, me and Lasse. You couldn't wish for a better husband. He's sensitive, fun, and insists that we share the housework equally. I probably do slightly more anyway because I have more time. But in principle. He's not good looking, not at all. But then neither am I, as I've been told. I could have been happy with Lasse during those months. Sometimes we'd make love during the day. I closed my eyes. He had a pot belly and a lot of hair on his body, particularly around his navel. I closed my eyes and thought of the summer cottages, all those lives just waiting to be discovered within walking distance. It's difficult to describe how I felt during that week in Maud's house as I opened the cupboards and drawers. It gave me peace while it was going on. Perhaps the peace that comes with the awareness of absolute power. Of course I enjoyed giving my imagination free reign. Royal court, what could that be? The wax paper, what was it used for? But I won't pretend. I think it's about power. The problem with the summer cottages was that I didn't have keys. The first time I headed over there with trembling knees, I had no clear idea of what I was going to do. Perhaps that would have been the end of it if I hadn't immediately found the key to the first cottage I, I visited in the guttering. I was only five houses later that I found another key. I broke into the intervening four. If a spatula in the lock doesn't work, you can usually manage to undo one of the windows from the outside. The summer cottages were less rewarding than Maud's house. Apart from the occasions when I found photographs, I didn't know what the people looked like and had no faces to which I could attach whatever I found. Besides which, you don't leave as many clues in a summer cottage. It's cleaned up from top to bottom every year and many personal items are removed. But you don't need to, much to spin a tail if you have the gift. I find an ugly souvenir from Corsica, a Bible with various pat passages underlined and a high-visibility jacket from the national organization responsible for road maintenance. The picture is clear in my mind. It happened in January, after the Christmas break. By that time, I had been inside perhaps 25 houses. If anyone caught me, I would say that the owners had called me and asked me to turn off the water so that the pipes wouldn't freeze. If the owners caught me, it would have been slightly more difficult, but it never happened. Christmas wasn't at all in that enjoyable. I became dependent on my breaking and entering, and the children's Christmas holidays meant I couldn't get away. It was a lovely Christmas in every way, but I just wasn't really there. I think Lasse asked me one day, Veronica, what is it you're thinking about all the time? Nothing in particular. It's as if you're not here. I don't know. Perhaps looking at all these unfamiliar objects had alienated me from my own life. I looked at my own things, my own loved ones in the same way, a puzzle to be solved, a reality to bring together. Thought about how I could analyze the objects we would leave behind. It was a relief when normal everyday life returned. On the first day I was alone in the house, I neglected my work so that I could go out straight away. I chose a house that looked as if it had been lived in over Christmas, because the paths had been cleared. However, there was a thin covering of snow, so the residents must have gone home. It was one of the better cottages. The owner had knocked the old house down and built a new one, fairly recently. Picture windows looking over the garden, and a patio door that was quite easy to force. 
I moved quickly through the living room since the large windows meant I could be seen from the road. I just had time to notice that everything in the house looked expensive. Huge sofa, coffee table with interior magazines aesthetically arranged. I went into the kitchen, tiled floor presumably with underfloor heating, central island, drink shelf with every imaginable kind of liquor, cognac, whiskey, and so on. I sat down and poured myself a small whiskey, then rinsed and dried the glass before putting it away. The house was a mystery. Everything looked as if it came straight from the pages of Home and Gardens. Without doubt, they had employed an interior designer, and there was nothing personal. Steel utensils hung on hooks above the fan-forced oven with its ceramic hob, and every single thing was in its right place. Even the black granite salt cellar lying on its side looked as though it had been placed like that in order to achieve a certain effect. I started to get excited as I sat there at the kitchen table. Finally, a decent nut to crack. The life these people lived was so markedly different from mine that I would have to carry out detailed research to build up a picture. I decided to start with the bedroom. The bedside table is revealing. That's where you find the last thing a person puts down before they go to sleep and the first things they need when they wake up. Along with the bathroom cabinets, it's number one. However, the bedroom door was locked. Of all the houses I had gone through, this was the first time I had come across a locked door inside the house. That was the first clue. They locked their bedroom door when they went away, but why? Of course, this made me even more determined to get into the room. By this time, my hands were frozen. It was colder inside the house than outside, and my breath had formed clouds of vapor. I fumbled with my provisional lockpicking equipment and bizarrely couldn't get it open. It should have been a piece of cake, an internal door. However, the solution was simple. As in many houses, all the doors had been put up in the same time. And I found a key in the kitchen door that fitted the bedroom. I unlocked it. The only thing I saw was the outline of a double bed and a bundled up duvet. The blinds were drawn and the room lay in darkness. I risked switching on the light. It wasn't a duvet lying on the bed. It was a man. I jerked back and almost stumbled in the doorway, but grabbed hold of the frame and regained my balance. I realized at once that the man was dead. His body was chalk white, naked, completely motionless. His penis hung limply between his legs and something red was sticking out of his chest. My immediate impulse was to run away, but I stayed where I was. I'm quite a sensible person, in spite of everything. I realized I couldn't call the police, at least not until I found a phone box and could make an anonymous call. The closest was in Yortala. I approached the bed cautiously, stopped. I was in the process of destroying evidence that the forensic technicians might be able to find. And what about me? Were my fingerprints on the glass I'd used, for example? or on the door handle. Strange how death alters the way we look at things. The body on the bed was worthless, and yet it defined the room around it, the entire house. This was a house that contained death. I crept closer to any possible movement. But the man didn't move. His eyes were closed. His eyelids had a bluish tinge. One arm dangled over the side of the bed. The other was by his side. 
I reached out with one index finger and poked his big toe. It had virtually no elasticity. It was as if the body was deep frozen. I could now see that the object sticking out of his chest, directly over the heart, was the handle of a clasp knife. The word equinox was written on the handle. Equinox is the time of year when day and night are of equal length. I liked the word, but never had the opportunity to use it, Q and X. I stood there motionless with my arms by my sides, as if standing to attention before the dead man and tried to work out what was wrong. Something was wrong, something didn't fit. The red, soft rectangle sticking up from the chest was beautiful in some way. An anatomical arrow pointing at the heart, into the heart. It was a beautiful corpse, no blood. That was it, exactly. The knife was sticking straight into the heart, but no blood had run down the chest. I checked the sheet at the side. Just as if it had been a fairy tale, there was one drop of blood, just one. It was impossible to understand how that could have happened. Someone must have wiped him clean after, after it had happened. The man was about my own age, around 35. He looked like one of those handsome guys at high school who kind of lived in a different world. If you ever danced with them, their eyes were always somewhere else. His hair was very soft, as if it were freshly washed. I didn't know how long he had been dead, but the cold had preserved the body intact. I thought about Snow White, the knife was the red apple. The only thing missing was a glass coffin. I laughed out loud. So I must be the handsome prince in my dark gray padded jacket. I pulled on my gloves and opened the drawer on the bedside table. It was empty. I opened the wardrobe, empty except for a couple of blankets. Where are his clothes? The alarm clock next to the bed had stopped at 20 past 11. I pulled a chair up to the bed, sat down, and let my gaze wander over the body. I have to say it again, he was almost perfect. Muscular, but not over the top. A body moving in H2O, seven letters, swimmer. His jawline was well-defined, casting a black shadow over his throat in the electric light. His lips could have convinced me that he was alive. Pale and bloodless, yes, but not sunken. They were full, pouting as if he were waiting for the kiss of life. His brow was high and smooth, and his blonde, medium-length hair was swept back. He was very handsome. The only thing that spoiled the impression was the hair on his chest. Blonde, almost white, curling down towards his abdomen. Not too much, but enough to be disturbing. And then there was the penis. The idea was new to me. I had never seen a dead body before. But is there anything more pathetic than a dead man's penis? So utterly, so mercilessly unnecessary. I took one of the blankets out of the wardrobe and spread it over his lower abdomen. I suppose I really should have covered his face as well. Something to do with respect. But I didn't feel any respect. No. Now the initial shock had subsided, I felt only excitement. Hi there, you, I said. He didn't reply. I would have liked to know his name so that I could use it. For the time being, I decided to call him you. 
I wasn't scared at all. Perhaps it was the absence of blood, the undisturbed condition of the body that made the whole thing unreal. I sat with him for a good while. When I left, after checking that there was no one in sight on the road, I left the patio door on the latch. By the mailboxes I counted back and forth between the houses I knew and worked out the man's mailbox was number 354. There was a name too, Svensson. I found it so comical that the man was called Svensson that I started to laugh. I had imagined something along the lines of, oh, I don't know, the floor, sander, anything at all, but not Svensson. Of course there was nothing to do indicate that the man on the bed was the owner of the house. I'd never seen him before. As I walked home, I tried out the name, Svensson. Svensson. Oh well, it wasn't too bad after all. Could be anybody. I remember those days, those first days, wonderful days, blissful expectation running through my body like honey. Lasse noticed the change in me. He said it, it was as if there was a light all around me, or as if the darkness had ebbed away. Same thing, really. I played with the children. I cooked delicious meals. In the evenings, while we were watching TV, I curled up in Lasse's arms. I loved him because he was simple and imperfect, dirty like me, another person. And I was longing to be somewhere else all the time. I was afraid of two things, that the people who owned the house would come back, and that the weather would get warmer, begin the thaw. However, my reasoning was this, either the man on the bed is the person who owns the house, or the people who own the house have something to do with his death. Neither of these alternatives would lead to the man being moved. I know, I know, it wasn't exactly watertight but that's the way I reasoned in order to calm myself down. With regard to my other fear, that was nothing to worry about. The weather forecast promised the cold spell would continue. So I curled up in Lasse's arms and smiled at the weatherman as he pointed to his minus signs and snow flurries. Everything was as it should be. As soon as the children had gone back to school and Lasse back to work, I headed over to the house. I was wearing several layers of thin woolen sweaters so that I could cope with remaining still for a long time without suffering too much. What did I do once I was there? It's hard to describe, really. You could call it a confession. I told you everything, and you listened. I looked at you as I talked. You were so good to look at, like a Greek statue. I caressed you. No, not like that. It was pointless, of course and perhaps that was actually part of the point. I could caress you without it meaning that. I could caress you because you were beautiful, like a statue. I told you how beautiful I thought you were, and that you were mine and mine alone. Is that sick? Well, yes, I suppose it is. I knew that while I was doing it. I knew I was doing something ugly, something bad. But I said to myself, what crime am I committing? I suppose the closest thing is desecrating a corpse, but how can it be desecration? Talking to someone, caressing someone, telling that person how beautiful he is? If that's desecration, then what is love? 
Before everything changed, there was really only one thing I did that you could regard as overstepping the mark. On the third day, I took Lasse's shaving things with me and shaved off your pubic hair and the hair on your chest. It bothered me so much, all that hair. I call it overstepping the mark because it's something you would hardly have agreed to get to do, given the option. But you weren't a person. You were a dead thing. I was the one who had found you, and you looked so much better without all that hair. Completely smooth. No longer almost perfect, but totally perfect. A knife? You might think that would spoil the picture, the red handle sticking out of your chest and breaking the surface of the skin. Equinox. Quite the reverse, in my opinion. It acted like a beauty spot. Six letters. Moosh. It was all about a fixed point somewhere for the eye to focus before it moved on to the rest of your beauty. And, if I'm truthful, I was afraid to pull it out. I mean, I've read the fairy tales. The sword is pulled out of the dead king's body, he turns to stone, crumbles to dust, and is gone. So I made a virtue of necessity, called it a moosh, and left it where it was. Your eyes were closed, and I told you everything. I told you things I didn't even know I felt before I met you, found you. The constant sense of unreality, the veil between me and the world. How it would suddenly feel as if Emil and Johanna were dolls and not mine at all. How I would be able to see Lasse in bed with x-ray vision and realize that he, he consisted of minced beef packed into a bag of skin. A hundred kilos of mince. How I would have loved to close my eyes. You lay naked before me. You were beautiful and you listened, if only things had stayed that way. It started on the sixth day, a Monday. I had been forced to leave you alone over the weekend for family reasons. I don't remember what I did that weekend. I think I baked a big batch of vanilla cakes. Emil and I watched Astrid Lindgren's A la Vibarn y Bulivern, which was being repeated for the hundredth time. You had just have to grin and bear it. I was desperate by Monday morning when they were, they'd all gone. Just to test myself, to discipline myself, I chopped a couple of armfuls of wood and filled the basket by the fire before I set off. I almost ran to your house, hardly bothering to look around. My heart was beating fast. I think I was blushing. As always, I was afraid something might have changed during my absence. But the snow that had fallen during the weekend lay undisturbed on the drive, and there were no marks on the porch. I went inside. When I walked into your room, I stood motionless in the doorway for several minutes. You were lying there with the blanket pulled up to the knife handle. The contours of your body were clearly visible beneath the thin woolen fabric. A new kind of beauty, but not created by my hand. I was 100% certain I had left you naked. On the rare occasions when I had covered you with the blanket, I had placed it over your lower abdomen. I had never covered your whole body, but now the blanket was draped halfway up your chest. I stood there, motionless, listening. There had been no marks in the snow, so there must be someone else inside the house. Someone who had been there all the time. No point in pretending otherwise. I was scared, scared and embarrassed. There was someone in the house, someone who had known about my comings and goings, perhaps listened to my confessions. Someone knew more about me than I would wish any living person to know. 
I took a carving knife from the magnetic holder in the kitchen and spent over an hour searching the entire house. I opened every cupboard, every wardrobe, every drawer, even if it was actually too small for anyone to hide in. I found nothing and the impression I had gained on the first day was reinforced. Apart from the tipped over salt cellar, there was nothing to indicate that the house had ever been lived in. I went back to you and sat down. How did you get that blanket over you? That was the first question I asked you. My monologues had never taken the form of questions. I had no interest in speculating about your life among the living. You were simply here. During the search, I had grown hot and sweaty in all my lairs. It was as if extinguishing material. Two words, six letters, dry ice had been injected directly into my muscles as you parted your blue lips and uttered three words. I was cold. Your voice was weak, hollow, as if it came from far away. My body was suddenly ice cold. I was frozen to the chair. Your lips closed. You had parted them just enough to allow the words to escape. It was a long time before my vocal cords thawed and sufficiently for me to speak. You can't be cold. You're dead. Did I see the faintest twitch in the corners of your mouth? The hint of a smile? Your lips opened again, a little further this time. You said, You're dead too. You're wearing sweaters. I'm not dead. You're not alive. Only now did it strike me as odd that you knew I was wearing sweaters. But then my gaze slid up to your eyes. They were open, only a fraction, a slightly denser shadow below the eyelid. Like someone having a pleasurable experience or about to fall asleep, or someone who had just woken up, I couldn't see your eyes. A person's ability to deal with new situations is a strange thing. You were talking to me. I hadn't imagined that you would be able to talk to me. But when you did, I accepted it. What else could I do? You've made your bed and now you must lie in it. That's what my mother used to say. I hated that expression. When I hear myself saying it to my own children, I am seized by the urge to punch myself on the nose. But that's the way it is. I think you were looking at me from beneath those almost closed eyelids. I asked, would you like another blanket? Yes. I fetched the other blanket from the wardrobe and spread it over you. When I had done that, I folded my arms and said, I have no intention of becoming some kind of nursemaid, you know. Your head moved slowly from side to side and you said, I don't need anything. Your voice was very weak. I had to strain to hear the words. There was something cheeky, 11 letters, impertinent, about the way you said you didn't need anything. A kind of smugness. I looked at you, under the blankets, and you looked more like a normal sick person. I removed the blankets. In that case, you won't be needing these either. I carefully folded the blankets and put them back in the wardrobe. You didn't object. When I turned back to face you again, everything was as it should be. Your naked, shaved body stretched out on the bed just the way I wanted. Perhaps by the... Perhaps by the way of apology, I said it again. You can't be cold, you're dead. I understand. What do you understand? Nothing. Come on, tell me, I'm curious what a you understand when you're dead. You didn't reply. I gave your shoulder a push, just a little one. Tell me. 
No reply. Your eyelids were closed once more. I sat beside you for a while longer. You were so beautiful to look at. It wasn't the time for any more confessions. When I got up to leave, you said something I didn't hear, so I bent down and put my ear close to your mouth. What did you say? The lips parted. I was aware of the faint aroma of something like frozen berries. You said, I don't want you to come here anymore. I straightened up. I'm sorry, I said, but that's not actually your decision to make. Your face was so rigid that it was impossible to pick up any kind of reaction. I waited a few seconds for a futile protest. When it didn't come, I left the house for that day. From now on, I'm going to admit all my reaction and speculation on the fact that a dead man was talking to me. Of course, I turned the problem over in my head many, many times. You weren't really dead. Of course you were dead. You had spent at least six days lying in the room where the temperature was below freezing. I was mad. I wasn't mad. There was nothing in my behavior to suggest that I was mad. I was imagining the whole thing, and so on and so on. But it was a fact. From now on, we will talk. take that as read. When I got home earlier than usual, despite the hour I had spent searching the house, I was disappointed. Sad. In spite of my hard attitude, your last remark had hurt me. I cried for a while. Then I tried to do some work on a crossword. I had a deadline to meet. It didn't go well. So I sent an old one from Hemet's journal to Allers, and vice versa. The one for Krampusten wasn't so urgent. I knew it wasn't a good thing to do. The crosswords I sent were no more than four years old. The editor wouldn't notice a thing, but I could guarantee some old bag in Smulland or somewhere like that would complain. People with photographic memories enjoy doing crosswords, or so I've heard. Your body was all I could see during the hour I spent sitting at the computer, trying to come up with new combinations of words, witty little secondary meanings. Only your body, your perfect face. You no longer belonged to me. You had taken yourself away from me. What right did you have to do that? Yes, the disappointment slowly changed to anger. Anger because I wasn't good enough for you. Because you preferred to lie dead and alone in that bare room rather than to have me by your side. My secrets and my musings on life weren't good enough for you, Svensson. My anger spilled out into the family, I must admit. Not in the form of outbursts of rage, but rather simmering discontent, a constant state of irritability. I could be forgiven to some extent because my period was due. That was what last I thought, anyway. I was perfectly clear about one thing. I would never ever tell anyone about you. You might as well have distanced yourself from me, but you were still my secret and mine alone. The following morning, I put some makeup on. Oh, it makes my cheeks flame as I tell you this, but I don't want to hide anything. I put some makeup on, made myself look good. The biggest problem with my face is that it's so flat. My nose is small with slight downturn. My lips are thin. The space between my eyes and eyebrows is shallow. My eyes are almost completely devoid of any oval shaping, which combined with the shallowness of the sockets means that they have no depth and the color is a watery blue on top of everything else. But the value of makeup cannot be over 
estimated, if it's done properly. I brought out my cheekbones with blusher, deepened my eyes with shadow and coal, made my lips look fuller with a lip pencil and lipstick, covered the spots on my forehead with foundation. I'm not claiming to be some kind of expert, but what I do, I do well. If I were to make an objective assessment, I would say that the makeup made me look twice as good or half as ugly. I set off. Halfway to your house, I took out my pocket mirror and checked one last time, touched up my lipstick. What was I trying to achieve? I don't know. Not exactly. If I say it was an attempt to make the situation more sacred, it sounds as though I'm dressing things up. Nine leathers. Euphemism. But I think that's the closest thing to the truth. Like wearing a white blouse to church, making sure the back of your neck is clean. The first thing I noticed when I got inside was the bedroom door was open. I had left it closed, but not locked. When I looked in, you were lying on the bed with both blankets over you. I took a walk around the house and didn't seem to have done anything. Hang on a minute. Of course. The salt cellar was upright. I laughed out loud when I thought about how the dead rise from their graves to avenge an injustice, to put something that was wrong when they died. So this was your motivation. The thing you needed to put right, a salt cellar. For the first time, I thought you might be a corpse of a pretty pathetic person. Your eyes were closed as before. I sat down at the side of your bed. So you've been up and about, I said. After a minute with no response, I got up and removed the blankets. You made a movement with your arm as if to stop me, but it was slow and weak. I bundled up the blankets and chucked them in the wardrobe. Then you opened your eyes, a little more than the previous day. I could see a glimpse of something not unlike a jellyfish that had been washed ashore beneath your eyelids. Dried slime. You've got makeup on, he said. Yes, I said. I've got makeup on. Why? Because I felt like it. That's all. A twitch of the mouth. I didn't like that twitch. It made your face change. Share the joke, I said. Shit is shit, and snuff is snuff, and golden tins as well. I waited. The long sentence had clearly taken it all out of you, because it was quite a while before you finished off with a... an Eastern European whore. That's what you look like. What do you know about whores? I know a great deal about whores. Call me prudish, call me prim. Call me any synonym you like, but I don't like people talking that way. I really didn't like it when you talked that way. I didn't mind you being pathetic, but this wasn't acceptable. I took out my makeup bag and I painted your lips. I said, even it's even in golden tins. It destroys the rhythm if you say as well. Can you hear it? There are a few things I detest more than people misquoting poetry. You had closed your eyes again. I put a thick layer of pale blue eyeshadow on your slightly blue, shimmering eyelids as I drew my coal pencil along the edges. If I could feel that the eyes beneath really were dried up. Hard. Froding must be turning in his grave. That's what annoys me so much, you see. Poetry is hard work. A poet can struggle for days, weeks, to find the right word. To misquote is to completely discredit his work. 
It shows a lack of respect towards the writer, a lack of respect towards the language itself. You have no respect. That's your problem. I finished off by slapping far too much orange-tinted blusher on your cheeks. The whole thing was way over the top. You looked like a clown. I took a step back, folded my arms, and contemplated my handiwork. You really did look funny. You have no respect, I said. I don't want to know, but I'm convinced your death has something to do with the fact in one way or another. You didn't reply. You just lay there like an unsuccessful shop window dummy. Think about it, I said, and turned on my heel. When I got home, I took out the biggest pitcher we had and positioned myself in the middle of the kitchen. I hurled the jug on the floor with all my strength. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon removing fragments of the glass from the kitchen. Tiny splinters had ended up in the most unlikely places, in the fruit bowl behind the radiator, in the little gap between the oven and the cooktop. I had to squint and twist my head at different angles to catch their reflections in the cold sunshine. I tracked down every single one and removed them. I didn't cry. I didn't have a lump in my throat. Then I made a really special meal for my family. Koch Alvin, but with chicken. You can't get hold of cockerel. We had a nice evening. Very nice, actually. I slept badly that night. Our bedroom is upstairs, and when the wind takes hold of the tin sheets on the roof and bangs them against each other, the vibrations run right through the entire bed frame. It sounded as if someone was trying to get in. I sat up in the armchair with a little reading lamp switched on and tried to concentrate on a biography of Frida Kahlo. The wind didn't begin to drop until about three o'clock in the morning, and I had managed to get a few hours of sleep. Lasse and the children had already flown the nest when I got up. I sat in the kitchen with my coffee, feeling a great sense of loss. Lasse had written me a note as he sometimes did when we didn't see one another in the morning. See you this afternoon, thinking of you, XXXL. I sat there, turning the note over and over in my fingers. I could see his fingers laboriously printing the letters with the thick point of the pencil. He's dyslexic. That's funny, isn't it? Married to me, and he's dyslexic. He'll never be able to solve my crosswords but the note was spelled correctly. I went into Emile's room. Bomsy the bear comic strewn all over the floor, drawings of dinosaurs on the desk, and the smell of a small child that still surrounded his body, permeating his sheets and in the air. Johanna's room, pictures of Darin cut out of Frida and pinned up on the wall. Maria Gripes, Trotovillian flyer, Ischgirmegen, neatly placed on the bedside table a bookmark with a heart on it sticking out somewhere around the middle. I sat down on the bed. A couple of days earlier, over dinner, Emil had talked about some major project they were going to be doing in school. I couldn't remember what it was. I hadn't been listening. I wish they were with me now, all of them. That they were telling me something, holding me tight, shaking me that I could look into their eyes and recognize them, that they knew I was their mom, wife. I got dressed and went down to the sea. The wind during the night had blown the pack ice into jagged mounds, irregular patterns in the inlet. 
The tender from Damaro was on its way in, making for the steamboat jetty and passing a flock of tufted ducks paddling by the edge of the ice. There was no more than a faint breeze now, but it was still so cold that it pinched at my nose and cheeks. Perhaps the ice would stay this year. Perhaps we would be able to buy cross-country skis and head off beyond Damaro and Gaveston, light a campfire on some distant island, and grill sausages, far away from everything and everyone else. I walked up towards your house. This would have been the last time. I really just wanted to explain to you that you were a nasty piece of work who didn't deserve my care and attention. Then I would leave you to rot until the spring. I had a premonition. It turned out to be correct. Before I even turned off the road, I could see there were footprints on the drive leading up to your house. I kept on walking, sweat broke out along my hairline, itching beneath my woolly hat. Did I leave anything inside? The makeup. But there was no way anyone could link the makeup to me. They would realize someone had been in the house, but was there any way they could know it was me? Had anyone seen me? No, I didn't think so. I carried on around the bend in the road so that I could see the back of the house. The footprints led to the patio door, only now did it occur to me that it was strange that there were no tire tracks. If they had come to pick you up, surely they would have some kind of vehicle. Besides which, it had been very windy during the night, and yet the tracks were perfectly clear. That meant they must have come at some point between 3 o'clock in the morning and now. It was just after 10. I turned and went back, constantly on the lookout for some movement, some glimpse of activity inside the house. But there was nothing. When I reached the tracks, I slowed down and stopped. The tracks had been made by bare feet. The soles were clearly visible in the snow, which was about three centimeters deep. They were your footprints. I took a few steps along the drive, following them up with my eyes. They went in both directions, but the ones leading to the road were much less clear. You had been out, then gone back home. I stood staring at the tracks for a long time, glancing frantically over towards the road until a thought struck me. I ran back to my house, our house, Lasse's and my house, Lasse's and Emile's and Johanna's and my house, my family's house. They began halfway up the path leading to the front door. They ran along the side of the house. I crouched down. There were tracks made when you were leaving. The heels were facing the house, but next to them was a series of faint indentations in the snow. The footprints you left on the way in, which had been filled in by the wind. I followed the tracks, flattening them down and rubbing them out with my boots. They stopped below my bedroom window ending with two feet side by side, clearer than the rest. You stood here for a long time, stood in the cold wind during the night below my window as I sat in the chair unable to sleep. It could have been romantic. I fetched the straw broom and swept the entire area. I had to scrub and bang to obliterate the last two impressions, the ones where you had stood. How did you know where I live? Few things are as unpleasant as getting hot and sweaty, than standing in the cold as the sweat dries on your skin, with your clothes still wet. My breath was coming out of my mouth in dense clouds, saturated with moisture. You were lying on the bed as usual, 
The makeup was smeared across your face, the blanket stained where you had used it to scrub at your skin. I ripped the blanket off your body. Answer me. I no longer thought you were beautiful. You were nothing more than a lump of frozen meat, lying there weighing down on a bed. That ridiculous sausage between your legs, your messy face, and that knife in your chest. I yanked it out. I threw it at the wall. You didn't move a muscle. A vicious, brownish bubble rose from the wound and stopped. Your lips parted and you whispered, You are dead. My stomach contracted in painful cramps and I could feel the menstrual blood seeping out to compensate for the blood you were not bleeding. Everything went red before my eyes and I screamed, I am not dead. You are the one who's dead, you disgusting bastard, and you can lie here and rot as far as I'm concerned. I don't care about you anymore. So what have you got to say about that? My face was burning and I didn't hear your answer. I leaned closer. Every word you said, every breath carried with it the stench of jam that had been left in the freezer for too long. Everything you told me indicates that you're not alive. At first, I didn't understand what was happening. It was as if the light had changed, as if the room had begun to tilt and my body was being twisted into a position where it didn't want to be. A great weight fell through the air. My eyes pricked and tears welled up. It's possible, but I... I... I cracked. An abscess of tears burst in my throat, and although I didn't want it to happen, although I didn't want to humiliate myself like that, my anger turned to sobs and my voice trembled as if in prayer when I spoke. I'll be better. I promise I'll be better. Leave me in peace. Don't come to me. Leave me alone. The fury ebbed away. The room was silent. There was only the sound of my sobs, the warm tickling feeling down my inner thigh as the blood overflowed. You opened your eyes wider than you had ever done before and looked at me. Two lumps of gray slime. You were smiling. This time you were really smiling. You said, I'm sorry, but that's not actually your decision to make. I don't remember how I got home. I found how I found the tools in the shed, how I got back. The images all flow into one. Suddenly I'm standing there again in your bedroom, but this time I've got a hammer and nails and staples. I forced your hand down toward the frame of the bed. I hammered two nails through the hand itself, then a staple around each finger. The sharp ends peeled away the skin, but the hoops clamped the skeleton firmly. The hand was securely fastened. You couldn't go anywhere. All this is logical, a reasonable course of action. I had nailed you down so that you couldn't come and threaten my family and my children. I did what had to be done. But as I stood there looking at you, panting, you smiled that smile, the smile that said you had the upper hand because you knew my most fragile secrets, while I didn't even know your name. The smile that said I was worth nothing, a little gray, flat woman whispering and worshipping by your side. I undid my trousers and took out my sodden sanitary towel. I painted you red chest, arms, legs. To finish off, I tried to force the towel in your mouth, but it was too tightly closed. I placed it over your eyes instead. Then I left. 
I took a long, hot shower, then I crawled into bed and wrapped myself in a cocoon of warmth and darkness. I closed my eyes and tried to persuade my body that none of this had actually happened. I said I was ill, that I had a temperature. Perhaps I did. The combination of sweating and getting cold. I felt wretched, shivering fits running beneath my skin. My body felt sick. Sick. Sick in a way that no thermometer can measure. They brought me food. Spaghetti bolognese. Last I sat down by my bed and asked what I had been doing during the day. Miel came up and told me about his project again. It was to do with a farm. They were building a farm out of cardboard and making animals out of clay. Next week, they were going to visit a farmer. It sounded terrific. I just wanted to cry. I managed to control myself. When I was alone again, I crawled into the floor. I lay down on the wooden floorboards and lifted my hair, exposing the back of my neck. Seize me. Stab me. Nothing. I wanted it to happen. There was no prayer to so heartfelt or so eloquent that it could match my need. There was only one thing to say. Punish me or forgive me. Perhaps God would punish me later. Perhaps he would allow Emil to drown. From now on, every terrible thing that befell my family was my fault. It was a dreadful thought. The alternative was th that he might forgive me, yes. It was possible, but I didn't believe it. If our picture of God is a projection of what we ourselves are, then there is no forgiveness. Not for me. Never. Everything remains as it is. Evening came, then night. When last I came to bed, he asked me how I was, how things really were. I said I felt sad. I wanted to tell him everything, but I said I felt sad. Then I rolled over with my back to him and asked him to hold me. He did, as I asked, and it was nice, but it wasn't enough. He would have to be ten times bigger, a hundred times bigger. I would have needed to lie in the palm of his hand. So the night came, and the minutes. They were long. Lass's breathing was warm and whispering against the back of my neck. The minutes crawled on spider's legs through pine resin. I slid out of Lassie's arms and got up. Stood for a long time in the middle of the floor, listening to the wind in the tin roof. Bang. 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 I will stand here. I was all night as a penance. It was the first thought I had all day that made me, well, not happy. But contented. It was a good thought. Stand motionless in the middle of the floor all night. See if I could do it. Perhaps God would notice me then. I'd been standing there for maybe half an hour when the urge to do what I shouldn't do began to make itself felt. To go over to the window, peek through the blind and see if you were standing out there. I pinched my earlobe hard. Lassie turned over in a bed. A relief. If he opened his eyes now, he wouldn't be able to see me. Ten minutes passed. My knees were beginning to ache. The urge came over me again. I stared at the blind, tried to stare straight through it, pinched my earlobe again harder this time. I almost squealed out loud. Bang, bang, bang. Loud bangs, I thought. If the front door opens, I won't be able to hear it. I made my body stiff and straight like a plank of wood, nailed myself to the floor. 
I was the one who usually locked the front door at night. Had Lasse done it tonight? He had once said it made him feel as if he was at work, at the prison, if he had to lock the front door. He wanted to feel relaxed at home. My stomach was turning. The torments of the night would be even worse if I stood here not knowing. Anyone who really wants to get in will get in anyway, Lasse had said on that occasion. I pinched my earlobe again. It didn't help. I had to check the door. On feet that tingled from standing still, I crept over to the door, opened it cautiously, and peered down the, the stairs. The air. What's different about the air? The air outside the bedroom was fresh and cold. Not only was the front door unlocked, it was standing wide open with the night wind blowing through the hallway. My heart leapt in my breast, and just as I reached the top of the stairs, I heard Emil scream. Not scream, roar. Nothing on earth is worse than hearing a child roar like that from the depths of his body with horror, pain. When it's your own child roaring, nothing, nothing. I almost fell down the stairs as I hurled myself forward and my body was an open wound. Emile's roar was a red hot poker being thrust into the wound. I reached the landing and saw you coming out of Emile's room. You were naked. Your body was smeared with my blood and you were holding the clasped knife in your hand. The blade was open. You had Your hand reached out towards my face and Emile kept on roaring. And somewhere right at the back of my mind, a voice was whispering, he's yelling, he's alive. And the hand reaching towards my face was not a hand, but merely a ragged combination of bits of skin and skeleton left over when you tore it free from the nails and staples. You hit me across the cheek my head jerked to one side and I fell. As you walked out the front door, I crawled towards Emile's room. I wanted to be sick. I didn't want to see. I could see the soles of Emile's feet drumming against the mattress as if he were running up towards the ceiling ridiculously fast. I dragged myself to my feet. Emile was stretched out on the bed, dressed only in his underpants. The quilt had been thrown to one side. The whole of his little body was shaking and jumping with the jerking of his legs as they ran and ran. His mouth was wide open, a gaping hole letting out that roar. The wound was directly above, over his heart. I fell on him. I wrapped him in my arms and his roaring deafened me. Don't die, don't die. The sensible part of my brain, the cold, clear sense somewhere behind the fear was whispering, stop the bleeding, help him. I obeyed. With shaking hands, I switched on the bedside light and looked over at the wound ready to tear strips off the quilt cover, tear strips off myself. It was only a scratch, making a point. Emile carried on screaming. At last I heard Lassie's footsteps on the stairs, three long strides, loud thuds, and Andy came running into the room. What is it? What's happened? What I said couldn't have made any sense to him, couldn't possibly have seemed like the right reaction to what he could see before his eyes. I ran my hand over the wound, got a tiny drop of blood on my fingers, and I whispered, it's only a scratch, just a little scratch. It took two minutes before Lassie grasped what had happened. Man had come into his house and marked his son, frightened him out of his wits. Lassie went out to look for the man, someone from the mental institution, no doubt. I sat with Emil. Johanna came to join us. We sat with Emil. The fear shone from his eyes. He couldn't speak, I thought. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for letting him live. Lasse came back after a quarter of an hour. 
He hadn't found the man, so he called the police. Emil was no longer screaming, he was just panting. They asked Johanna to stay with him, then I got up and went outside. Lasse was busy on the phone. I went to the woodshed and fetched the axe. Nobody knew you had been dead from the start. It wasn't even impossible to identify the remains. But there were other mitigating circumstances, several. I'm happy with my punishment. <laughs>